but our recent biggest uh, sort of launch was with a with a company called Total Jobs, and that enables you to search for a job from your front door that's within a a commutable distance, uh, whether that's you know one hour, hour and a half, or forty five minutes, whatever you set. Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. My guest on the show today is Charlie Davis and he is the founder and CEO of the Travel Time platform. So this is a platform that lets you search for locations based on the time it takes to get there. So a very simplistic example would be you're in your apartment and you want to go to the nearest swimming pool. Not nearest in terms of straight line distance but nearest in terms of travel time this is the kind of problem that the travel time platform is solving of course there are a hundred other use cases and we'll get into those in the interview but before we dive into the actual interview i'd like to take a couple of seconds to remind you that this podcast is sponsored by hive mapper that's hive as in beehive mapper and this is the platform that lets you upload video footage to the cloud and have it automatically converted into 3d geospatial layers the platform itself does a whole lot more and it's really interesting if you're flying drones or working with aerial footage or interested in using it in your business or your day-to-day work i highly recommend you check them out okay on with the interview Welcome to the podcast, Charlie. Now, for those listeners that haven't met you before, you are the founder and CEO of a, of a company called, the, or a platform, I should say, called the Travel Time Platform. And so this has a, a lot to do with, with, with geospatial. It has a lot to do with mapping. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to diving in and learning more about it. But before we get into that, could you give me a little bit of background about yourself? How did you get involved in, in the Travel Time Platform? Sure. No, it's a pleasure to be here. Th- thanks so much for having me. It's a, it's a great honour to uh, to be on your on your podcast with you today, Dan. There's many stories around around how I sort of ended up doing what what I'm doing, but essentially I was working in a company uh, that was working heavily on local search. So this idea that you know two sides of the of a coin, where you've got people like me and you in our everyday life using. Uh, the web and mobile to find things in our real outdoor environment so away from our laptops away from our phones trying to find you know the hotel we want to stay in the property we want to live in the job we want to work in Uh, and we were working at this company and and trying to figure out better ways of doing it and that sounds like such a a big mandate you know here's something make it better and we we were working on several different ideas, and, and and sadly, although that company was had some great people in it, and it was a you know great idea, it didn't didn't work out. So uh, I was left um, back in my parents' loft with some sort of kernels of ideas in my mind, and one of them was this idea that I had while in a traffic jam uh, on on the M4, uh, one of the beautiful motorways uh, in in the UK. And there was lots of traffic. And I was thinking, you know, we're obsessed by distance. Every site that we were using, every site that we had looked at to develop or concepts or wireframes, it was always, there was always two different methodologies to deciding what to show someone. And that was either um, a municipality, you know, like the area of London or Islington or Camden or a city like Southampton. And those places exist mainly because they were areas that we could tax people on. And that, you know, in that sort of grown up in the sales model online for local search. And then 
the other one was was distance and distance is just the most useless way of searching for a human for for you and I you know and we I just thought stuck in this traffic jam when I'm searching for something that I need to get to or it needs to get to me then travel time is actually the most important unit to measure that by so very naively uh we decided that we would go and build what we now very imaginatively called the travel time platform in order to do exactly that we we have this platform that enables you and i to search the world around us and data around us in exactly the same way that we use it by travel time instead of distance and there's a lot of other like stories in between like where where that idea came from and, and where we find ourselves today but that's essentially how um myself charlie davies came to be doing what I'm doing here today and talking to you about. So you, you realize that accessibility to different areas, to different things, to, 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 to whatever is not necessarily based on, based on distance. It's not necessarily based on a straight line distance between where I am and where I'm trying to get to. So, so this is part of the problem you're solving. And I think the other part of the problem you're solving is the, the recognition that there is so much data out there that we need some way of filtering it. So it feels like you, you yeah. saw these two things here and slammed them together and came up with, with, with the travel time platform. Would, would that be a fair assumption? Yeah. I mean, as much as, uh, as much as Red Bull have ploughed into the uh, the advertising leviathan that they've become, um, I, I've never grown wings. I can't fly in a straight line, um, and I've never met anyone else that, that could do either. So, you know, we're at the mercy of those transport networks around us. And when we're trying to, you know, interpolate data around us, you know, as people, there's so much choice. There's so much out there. You know, if you do sort of any location-based search online, there's usually thousands, if not tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of results. And how do you find out that the one that you're looking at is the most relevant for you at that time? And it wasn't just the amount of data out there in terms of what could be searched, but when you put the element of travel time in there, you know, doing a, a distance-based search, there's a number of different methodologies to do it, but is fairly straightforward, if you, especially if you treat the world as a, as a flat plane. And to, to develop what we've done, we've had to actually amass huge amounts of transport data ourselves in order to build, the, build it in such a way that people can plug into it and say if they're a property company or, or they're just trying to find something for the weekend or using one of our tools in something like QGIS that they can very, very easily say, how far can I get within half an hour by public transport, walking, driving, cycling at different times of day? and then overlaying that with whatever data they want. So I'm really glad that you mentioned the, the data side of things because that's obviously a huge piece to, uh, of the puzzle here. And I really want to talk about that a little bit later on. But sure. just, just just for the moment, I want to stay with this idea of travel time and how it's bringing more relevant search results to us. Yeah, because It feels like it's you're putting a whole different spin on that first law of geography, which is all things are related, but near things are more related. And yeah. it feels like we could also add time to that. They also need to be related in time. And perhaps time here could be a reflection of accessibility and the amount of effort taken to move things from one place to the other, that, that kind of thing. So I think this is a really interesting concept. Yeah, and it's a, it's a great, great phrase that, you know, near things are more important. Well, what's defined near you know if we're if we're in the middle of a of a flat field 
you know, near is going to be anywhere within, let's say, you know, a 50 meter radial around us and then a mile and then two miles and what, you know, just keep on going. But, you know, we're, you know, humans have built this, this huge civilization across, uh, you know, across, across the globe. And that, that's put a level of complexity around what near means. Um, near is so many different things now. I mean, you know, if you take right up to what air travel is, reducing the amount of time that we can move around the globe but closer to home you know i live in central london and near to me is so much more important with travel time because i can get so much further uh, north and south from where i live than i can east or west in the same amount of time and when we started with this idea it was actually to develop a consumer a consumer offering you know we uh we wanted to go and build a, a tool that we could use in our everyday lives to find stuff around us that was that was near, that was nearby and relevant. And the problem with distance-based search and that, you know, defining near by miles or kilometers is that you're inevitably going to find lots of stuff inside of that radial, that circle, that you just can't get to. So, you know, from where I am right now, there's certain parts of London that if I did a three-mile search... Um, you know, which isn't really that far, then there's going to be loads of stuff that I can't get to within maybe 30 minutes or 45 minutes. But there's the, the other value of what we do is not just talking about, you know, removing the noise inside of a distance-based search, but all the opportunities that you would never think about. So, you know, if you were standing at, say, King's Cross Station right now, and you were saying, what could I do within 45 minutes? You could be, you know, 30, 50 miles outside of London quite quickly and then find yourself in an area, I don't know, like Milton Keynes, if you went from Euston and taking that, those islands that you find that would be outside of that original distance-based search are even more important. They're more valuable to you because there are areas that you just wouldn't have considered. And to include them on the distance-based search, you know, if you just increase that circle size, you're just going to increase the amount of noise that's there. So... Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to look at some of the, the different ways that urban areas can open themselves up and the accessibility of them when you look at them through the prism of time and, and not distance. Yeah, and when I visit your, your website, you have all these amazing images there of these, um, you describe them as travel time islands. Um, yeah. And for me, they, they resemble uh, well, the, the results of a viewshed analysis. So they're, they're kind of, they are islands. There's oftentimes a huge polygon with holes in it and polygons yeah. that exist outside that original one or that, that, that the, the biggest one. Yeah, and, and it really sort of opens your eyes to what is possible. And it shows these places that are very easily accessible and the ones that are perhaps closer to you in distance are not necessarily so accessible. It's a really, I, th- I think it's a really interesting thing to see. It's a really interesting visual way of describing what, you know, what the opportunities are in, in these particular areas. Yeah, and it's, it, it's all about sort of making a decision as well because it, it can be if you're near a, like a peninsula or a river, and you can't, you know, just jump over the river. So something that could appear, even if you're right there and then, line of sight, looking at it, it can appear very close. You know, I could, I can almost reach out and touch it, but it's going to take me, say, 15 minutes to walk down the road, over the bridge, and then back over to the same place and sort of look back on myself in the same position I was in. So it, it doesn't even have to be that much of a travel time to sort of make it more relevant and human to what we can actually do in 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 the in the geography that we find ourselves in
So I think you've done a really amazing job of describing the problem and how you're solving it and, and some of the results that, that come out of this process. I'd like to move on now and perhaps talk a little bit about the data that's sure. involved because I'm imagining this is a huge piece of the pu a puzzle. Yeah, it's um, one of our first challenges about developing what we've developed is, is always to us about speed. So my background is, you know, I'm not a geographer. Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not a GIS specialist. Um, although my vocabulary is getting getting better by the day, it, it's it's more. We, we, I was focused on how can people uh, use search in a in a more interesting way. So our focus was always on consumer sites, and it had to be quick because if, you know if things are slow online, people just tend not to use them. And our first challenge was, yeah, like I said, making that really performant. And I remember doing one of our first uh, big demos, uh, and it took about two minutes to do what we can now do in about 100, 100 milliseconds. And beyond that, you know, there's infrastructure and the teams around us to make sure that when you do a search in Sydney or San Francisco or Tokyo or, or Cape Town, that there is as fast. But as we've developed this beyond London, beyond the UK, beyond Europe, is, is data. And... There's no way to do a good travel time search unless you have good data. And that's been a big challenge for us because we've had to go and source some of that data. There's, there's lots of open data. But, but the problem sometimes with open data is that you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch when it comes when it comes down to it. So that data might be in different formats. Uh, it might be incorrect. It might be invalid. And there's a lot of cleaning and processing that we have to do to that data as well as test it to make sure that when you sort of, you know, put it on a map and do a route and then, you know, put it into our travel time platform, that it returns results that you'd expect. And one of the big challenges we've had around that uh, has been the public transport data. Um, there is no source of truth in this world, as far as I know, as far as I've been able to find, that says this is the transport operators that are in this city, this country, this town, this area, so that you can feel confident that you've got all of the operators in that area. And it's not just operators, it's also sometimes private services. South Africa has a huge amount of private services that are almost used as public services. And amassing that data for us has been a big challenge. We've got really good at it and we'll get much better. But the data side, you can't do what we do without having the best data possible. So when I think about data that, that might be applicable to solving these kinds of problems, I for sure think about infrastructure, roads, buildings, mm. um, that kind of thing, bike lanes. Uh, and, and you mentioned it before too, uh, public transport, uh, other kinds yeah. of transport networks. What, what are some of the data sets that perhaps someone like me wouldn't think of initially that are really, really important for, for this? One of the ones that I've been uh, working on recently is the combination combination of different modes so there's been lots of new services uh, i'm going to talk about london because that's where i spend the majority of my time but services like on-demand bikes um you know in the uk we started with uh, the we called them boris bikes but you know bikes that are at different stations but now you're having a number of different services like lime and and uber with the uber jump bikes around really changing uh, the interchangeable sort of intermobility. So, you know, if I get off at a tube station, maybe I'm not just walking now, but I can actually cycle up the road much, much faster. So understanding the likelihood of where the positioning of those bikes is going to be can really change how you look at a city because 
most of the time, if you're using metro services in a in an urban area, you, you can't take your bike or anything else on there. But now there are services that you can append in order to do that. So for me, that's been a really interesting one and in sort of looking at how accessible or how to search the city around us. But there's, you know, there's there's so many data sets out there that you can add in and you sort of get into the world of the law of diminishing returns. I've been asked so many things in so many different meetings. Uh, I got asked once for horse riding, uh, whether we would do that. And uh, <laughs> I, I think uh, we've we've moved on slightly from there. You know, weather conditions, um, it's really interesting. But because most of our stuff is about predictive modeling and what I'm going to do tomorrow or the next day or in a year, you know, over the next year or two, it's not not so much there. I mean, congestion data can be really interesting because people will actually make a choice you know, if ever, if someone's doing a daily commute, they may actually take a slower route, knowing that the quality of their journey would be better as well. So, you know, we could keep adding, I think, we'll probably never stop adding different data sets to the model to make it more realistic, to make it more closer to what we're doing in our everyday lives. But I, but I think, yeah, like I said, the law of diminishing returns really comes in when you've got too much data to manage. And the results that you're displaying aren't really that much better as, as a result of it. So you talked about all the different modes of transport there that were, were, were possible. And I understand that, you know, if there's service that are, that are available, you need to sort of take those into consideration. But how, as a user, how do I say, well, I'd like to walk, I'd, I'd like to take a bike from here to here. Do I get different results depending on how I am traveling? Yeah. Um, take one of, you know, one of our recent, bigger clients so we we make our platform available to sort of analytics departments so you know that's people in business uh who (laughs) who are sort of making decisions based on based on locations so you know where should i put my office where should i open my retail store should i open or close this hospital for population growth in the future and you know we embed those into tools like qgis arcgis uh, ultrix but then, you know, our biggest markets are in the consumer sites. Um, so in the UK, we have lots of property sites. But our recent biggest uh, sort of launch was with a with a company called Total Jobs. And that enables you to search for a job from your front door that's within a, a commutable distance, uh, whether that's you know, one hour, hour and a half or 45 minutes, whatever you set. And it's really interesting, actually, because the first iterations we did of this we gave every option that you could have on our API. So how much time would you like to walk to the bus stop uh, or your train stop? Uh, How much time uh, would you like to be on public transport for? How much time would you like to walk the other end? Uh, what, What exact time of day would you like to arrive at the office? And it just became far too much data. You know, when you look at route description and how you define a route, how you plan a route, uh, you can really get lost in the detail. And the detail is all of those things I just described. But the value of what you want is to understand very quickly maps and the data that's being produced by this mapping engine uh, back to the user. So on the total job site, you actually don't get an option at the moment of what mode of transport you want. Uh, it actually actively selects which mode of transport would be best for you to go onto that onto that specific job. And it gives you the travel time that you would use in order to get there. So it's not just saying everything within an hour and a half. It's giving you the exact time to each of those jobs as well. So it's about understanding huge amounts of data, um, you know, and taking the guesswork out of that 
presenting it back to the user when they see those lists or those maps coming back. And for them to go, oh, cool, I can make a decision much quicker without having to, you know, copy the address, putting it into Google Maps or something, doing an A to B route, you know, remembering it, going back into the platform, doing another search, finding another result. We just completely remove that guesswork from a user trying to understand what's in front of them, really. And I think that's the really amazing thing about maps is they can give you that overview really quickly. And I think sometimes we, we forget as practitioners in this space that we're, we're not talking about data sheets. You know, we're using a map for a reason because we're trying to give a visual overview so people can make that decision. And we've done the hard work for them. We've filtered out the data and we're showing them things that are relevant to them and not overwhelming them with with every possible option. Yeah. And. I find, like I said, you know, I I didn't study maps before doing this, and and I, you know, I, I don't pretend to be uh, like a GIS specialist or something, but I am just fascinated by the use of maps and how people understand them and how people use them. You know, there are so many maps online. I think that are there just to sort of make someone feel like they're in the right place, but they don't fully understand what's in front of them. So I always sort of use this example of of taking things away from a map, but you still feeling safe that you know what you're looking at. Um, you know, London's a great example because we've got the River Thames that sort of ebbs and flows in this wonderful snake-like uh, format over, you know, through through the middle of the city. And if I start removing things, but keep that, most people would say, oh, that's London, that's great. And when you're, you know, looking at a screen and seeing all the results in front of you, you put markers on a map or you put a map on and actually, when you ask someone to really look at it and say, what are you, you know, they know that it's in London and maybe they know it's in North London, South London, West, whatever it is, but they actually really spend quite a lot of time trying to figure out what each result means to them. And that's a, that's a bit of a problem if you're trying to get someone to sort of, you know, do something with the, with the results that you're showing them. <laughs> I, I had this thing I used to call uh, spinning pavements where, you know, I mean, mobile mapping is just like amazing. You can pull out your phone find out exactly where you are and then find out exactly where you want to get to once you've, you know, you've got the address and you can see this blue dot on a map in front of you. It's literally in the palm of your hands and maybe the compass is working to a degree and it's telling you you're facing in one direction, but I used to call it spinning pavements where you just have someone looking down at their phone, spinning on the pavement, trying to orientate themselves to where they are. And they've got the most detailed map in front of them. You know, they might have, you know, the buildings around them, the building name, the street name, even the direction of traffic that, you know, that it's a one-way street, so much data. But the cognitive decision-making around knowing exactly where you are was just completely lost. And I find like the GIS world where maps have to be so detailed, you know, it's this scientific methodology about, recording the environment that we're in so we can reproduce it in different different scenarios and different different procedures but when it comes down to people you know the people that are using these things around us they really don't interpret all that data they just sort of take what the bits that they need and, and get on with their everyday you know in, in a way people are <clears throat> their own sort of i don't know their own gis expert in their own world you know, we all do our own routes each day. We know exactly we're, we're those local experts on what we do. We know that if we leave five minutes earlier, we'll have a seat on the train or 10 minutes earlier and we won't get caught at that pinch point in traffic. And, you know, as, as you know, we've been collecting all this data. We can't use all that local information because 
you know that's what that's what people know and people people do but i am always amazed that you know if you actually take data away and you and and you just leave what someone needs they can actually make a quicker decision and and derive value from it far 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 quicker yeah i mean i can talk about this stuff for for ages but you know it's like, like the london tube map it's a map that is close to reality but not attached to the reality the physical reality so it's relative to each of the stations and you know when you look at it you can understand it i, I never used to have a favorite map um but i guess i do now and they would be those pilgrim maps um and pilgrim maps were used by people on their religious journeys to go and visit you know various uh, religious locations and it would say to you you know go towards this big tree and when you get to that tree find that big hill and when you get to that big hill you know keep you know find the next big landmark and keep going and these maps they're not maps they're they're not maps as you know we would look at you know a map on a a screen or on a, a piece of paper but they're instructions to use the world around us and that's what I think you know maps are that's what they should do is they should inform people and tell people uh the information around them so that they can better make a decision and that's, again, the core of what we're trying to do as well is remove all of that guesswork, just give enough information so that someone can actually make a decision with the data that, that you give them. I think, I think it's just fascinating how, you know, you look at, you know, we're looking at our screens all day with maps and then you look outside your window and there's people outside using the world without even thinking about, without even thinking about it. But, you know, we all have to use the environment around us. We're all using, all using the world and therefore you know, the, the data that all those maps are based on. I, I think you've done a really great job of sort of talking about some of the use cases. And it feels like a lot of it's revolving around that idea of, of making better decisions based on, on better data and giving people that really quick sort of overview. Where are we? What's around me? What are my option, uh, options from here? And, and this is, of course, is a perfect use case, use case for maps. But when, when I first saw your site, and started to read a little bit more about what you do, it occurred to me that there's a whole bunch of use cases here. We talked briefly before about some of the integrations that you have to QGIS and, and ArcGIS and presumably many other mapping platforms. So, so obviously the um, geospatial specialists in the room will be able to see the potential there. Um, but I could also imagine things like proximity marketing. I could imagine doing some kind of modeling the world like, okay, so this is the, these are your options here and now, but if we shifted the world, if we added in new streets or new public transport, we would get different results. Do, do you do any of that kind of work as well? Yeah, we, we, we do and we have in the past. So I think I mentioned earlier on that when we, when we had our first uh, iteration of what we do, it, it was clunky and slow, but it showed value in, in the sort of end result. And we found ourselves in this you know, GIS uh, market where people were using our data. And inevitably, we got asked the question of what would it look like in the future? Um, and there's a number of sort of fantastic uh, sort of infrastructure developments across the world at the moment. I'm going to have to go back to London again because of, of Crossrail, huge um, development of a, of a train train system, train line, sorry. And we had lots of people ask us, can you, can you model this? Can you map this? And we looked at some of the initial mappings that have been done actually by Crossrail itself. And they were, you know, a line across a map and it sort of showed where the stations would be. And we thought we could do a bit better. So what we did is we took as much information as we could find at the time. That's got better as we've sort of gone into the closer to Crossrail being being a real thing and it, be, it actually opening. 
and understanding, you know, when the trains are going to leave, how fast the trains are going to be, when they're going to arrive, etc., and integrating the future into a model that someone can use right now, but they can use it in the tools that they're already using. So they don't have to, you know, import a model into their own workstation, you know, process all the data, try and figure it out for themselves. They can just, you know, turn a switch um, and look and say, right, what's London going to be like in 2025? Or what's the Paris Metro going to look like in 2030? And that can be really fascinating to look at how the city would change, because it is fundamentally changing the city. It may not look like it, but it changes how you could use it, where you could live, where you could work, where you could, you know, meet your friends after work or do something uh, on the on the weekend. And it's also really interesting for you know analysts and GIS uh, specialists because they can advise clients and and the people that they're working with to make better decisions about you know opening a retail location here because in the future it's going to get a lot of footfall or you know a property developer saying. Look, we can build uh, we can build housing here because in the future it's going to be you know pretty accessible. Not just because it's near the station, but it's near a station that intersects with that new line. So there'd be a lot more sort of throughput on that network at that time. And that's a really fascinating one. We don't we don't allow people to edit the, the platform on the go. I mean, there are some there are some toolings out there that, that do that. But if you want to see what London would look like with Crossrail, you can just use our data in a couple of seconds. Well, actually, less than a second analyze your data against it. That sounds like a really fascinating use case to me. I love the idea of, of being able to speculate based on how the city's going to change, how the how these physical changes we make to our infrastructure are really yeah. going to affect the city and, of course, yeah. ultimately the people that live in their, in, in their lives, the way they spend their lives and the amount of time they spend on, on transporting themselves back and forth to different places. Yeah, I mean, time's a really interesting thing because it's not a commodity that you can you know offset between your days. We only have a certain amount of time per day, uh, per week, per month, per year, per per sort of lifetime. And it's really important to understand that we're not only using our current environment in a way that we can you know, maximize, maximize the amount of time to do the things that we really care about, that we want to do, but in the future that we're building transport networks and we're looking at things in a way that we can optimize what we're doing. We're not going to try and slow people down and take time away from them, but perhaps even, you know, that gift of giving time back, you know, when you find yourself that you actually have some spare time to do things. Uh, and yeah, it's not, you know, it's, I, I wish I had a better way to describe it, but it's, it's not a commodity that you can trade. So it's one of the most important, valuable things we've got. Completely agree. I've just got a couple more questions for you. And the, the first one is about, so, so obviously we talked a lot about London, we talked a little bit about Europe. Is this available in, in other places? Is it available in the US, Canada, in, in Asia? And I'm assuming when we start talking in different cultures, we have different rules around data. Has there been any sort of challenges you've run into with respect to that? Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know, a car is a car, a train is a train, a bike is a bike. And that object, that, that thing that we've built, they behave in the same way. You know, a, a car travels down a road, um, a train goes along tracks, uh, a bike is two wheels and someone sits sits upon it and, and, and moves themselves around. But there's a huge different, uh, you know, cultural element about how people actually use that. And what we've tried to do is develop sort of the human way of using these these vehicles not just understanding what the vehicle can do so we know that you know when you look at sort of a drive time model we take into account where someone could safely stop and get out of their car 
because there's no point just understanding that halfway down a highway or a motorway, you can just stop because you can't safely stop. The car could stop. And if you're just looking at a drive time analysis for a road and saying, hey, look, this is half an hour and we're just going to stop. Well, that's not something that's going to be helpful to that individual. It might be helpful to understand, I don't know, if your electric vehicle battery is going to run out and, and you want to see how far you can get at the maximum, you know, using the maximum of it. But there's so many different different ways. So, you know, we, we had to add cycling and public transport access in the Netherlands, because obviously in the Netherlands, you know, I don't know if you ever walked around Amsterdam, but bikes are king. You know, if you're, if you're not looking left, right, up and down, you're going to get sort of run over by, by a bike. And, you know, they, they rule the roads and they take priority. In other cities, they don't. Um, in, in the US, cars are so much more popular than in Europe with public transport because of the historic investment of governments being being different differently aligned. And there's a huge amount of work that we do in trying to understand that. Um, I wish I could say that I've been to every city where we have data and I've spent time with a notebook walking around, you know, going through the detail of how people are using it. But it's a really important thing to, to get onto. I mean, uh, another small one is, you know, a lot of the trains in the UK have this thing where they, the doors shut 30 seconds before departure other countries you know as the train's leaving the platform you can grab onto it and and on you go and that just is something that would never happen in the uk but would happen in other countries and you know although although the data and maybe the maths stays the same you know we're we're looking at you know when something leaves when something arrives but understanding how people how human beings how you and i would interact with that is another level of complexity but also another level of making it more interesting and useful. You're obviously someone who's who spent a lot of time collecting data from all over the world. And I've often he- heard a few sort of rumors about different regions in the world and, and some of the challenges around data. For example, I've heard that in Asia that sometimes things are a little bit offset so people can't get the exact picture. And I know there's some challenges around uh, addressing in, in India, and I'm sure there are in, in, in lots of other countries. Can you say a few words about that? Yeah, um, I was fascinated to learn that all the addresses, all the latlongs in China are incorrect because they have this sort of algorithm that, that, that changes them. So, you know, when you think you're looking at the exact object on a map, it's not not really there. I mean, we can't host data in China because it would have to be through a joint venture. And, you know, it's, it's, it'd be far too much effort for a company our size to, to do that. Other data sets... You know, for example, in the UK, there's a, a mandate where we've got to release all the public transport data, same in the Netherlands. But I mentioned South Africa earlier on, where there's loads of private services or just someone, you know, driving their minibus route. And it's used every day by thousands of people, but it's not a documented route. You know, it's not part of a government service. It's just how people are using the world around them and using all the different modes that are available to them. And trying to understand that en masse is... um. It's complex. Um, you, you try and you can't always completely solve it from data. So one of the things that we try and do is, you know, get feedback from our clients and our clients' users, and then try and ingest that back into what we do. But then also update the data sets that we're using as well. So this sort of constant circle of data going around. It is really tough. I mean, like I said earlier on, there's no direct source of truth for all the public transport data in the world you know we've had to go out and build our own lists and build our own own sort of data sets around that 
um, you know, the in India and its train network is just the most fascinating train network, one of the most fascinating tra- train networks in the world. Um, I never thought I'd say something like that, but I'm almost like a digital train spotter now. And, you know, trying to understand how you take the data from that, how much how much data you need to make a service useful. You know, we're not looking at optimizing optimizing the network itself. We're just looking at showing people that they can interpret that data or using that data set with other data sets in a, in a meaningful way. And, and we'll never finish. We'll, we'll, this will never be a finished project. We'll just have to keep going. So I think you've done a really amazing job of talking about the use cases, some of the challenges around them, and I can see so many more use cases out there. I can see so much potential in this. But when you look out into the future, what, what are the things or the use cases perhaps that you're most excited about? I think there is going to be even more data at our fingertips that we can use to sort of interpret and then provide more useful services to to people. I think that the, you know, 5G and the, I know it's so many buzzwords, you get sort of buzzword central of these things, but IoT and understanding that, you know, there's various congestion on, on roads or, or, or certain public transport networks are congested at certain times, air quality, you know, should I avoid certain areas and how can we design a route around that if I'm cycling at various times of day? There's going to be so much more data coming out and obviously huge amount of computing power, which is becoming cheaper by the day and, and more powerful as well. And when you sort of overlay those, the amount of data that we can just allow people to make those better decisions. But the, the complex side of that is going to be trying to figure out where we can find the value in that to provide the services that we're doing. And it's something that you know I sometimes you know keeps me going and thinking: what other data can we add? What what's the next data set that out there that's going to be available to us, so that when people look at maps, when they look at locations, uh, that maybe we can help them sort of make a decision faster or or a, or a better decision for them. Charlie, I, I really want to thank you for taking the time to do this interview with me, for coming along here and teaching us all a little something about travel time and its importance and the and potential use cases of it. I really appreciate it. So we've mentioned the name of the platform a few times, so people will be able to search that and find that if they're interested. But is there anywhere, anywhere else they can go to follow up with you or, or get in touch with you? Yeah, um, look, my email address is charlie at uh, iglis.com. Uh, feel free to email me directly if you've got some feedback on our platform, if you've got any more questions. Um, and if you want to have a quick look at the app, we have an app that you can you know, test our data on. That very simply is just app.traveltime.me. And if you punch that into your mobile browser or your web browser on your laptop or your desktop, you can immediately start playing with our data and, and seeing what it does. And I just want to say, Dan, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you as well. And thanks so much for inviting me on here. I feel very honoured uh, and amongst lots of other people that you've uh, that you've interviewed. And it's been a really great pleasure. That, that's really nice to hear. Thanks so much. No worries. Thanks. So at the top of this interview, I talked a little bit about my sponsor, Hive Mapper, and I mentioned about how you can upload video footage to the cloud and have it processed to 3D mapping layers. But, but what I didn't mention is that they've got this really cool feature that also lets you segment images. And this is done automatically. So there's no training sets required, there's no pixel signatures required, and it's repeatable. So I could do this for every single layer that Hive Mapper creates for me. And I can automatically segment images into show me all the buildings, show me all the trees, show me all the water, where is the pavements. And they have another really cool um, group there, which is called mobile. And this is all the things that can be moved. 
such as vehicles, boats, cars, aeroplanes, people and animals. I have no clue how they do it, but I think it's cool. It's worth checking out. And that's it for another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and I want to remind you that you are more than welcome to reach out to me for whatever reason on social media. To do so, you'll find some useful links in the show notes of this episode. I would really love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. It's much appreciated and I'll see you next week. Bye.